Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open to Romans chapter 13 as we continue studying this amazing letter from Paul the Apostle. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the black ones in front of you and turn to page 892. Romans chapter 13 or page 892 in the Pew Bibles. All right, would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Romans 13, starting in verse 1, this is what Paul writes. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So it was December 2019, and I was driving on the 5 freeway, I think over by Lake Forest some evening, and I think it was raining. And I remember, like for many of you, the first time I've heard about this thing called the coronavirus but it was a Christmas season. I was busy, like all of you, getting ready for Christmas and had no time to think of a new virus or some city called Wuhan in China that I'd never heard of before. January 2020 came around, and again, COVID was a thing, but not that much on my radar and neither of us as a church as well, because at that time, we were bringing in a new staff member, Jesus Cantu and his family. We were bringing them over from Kentucky. So again, COVID was on the radar, but nothing we really thought about. February 2020, Italy locked down. And a fear and panic began to grow over this new virus. March 2020, specifically Tuesday, March 10th, I sent my first email or my first post on Realm. And if you don't know what Realm is, if you're new, this is the kind of our, our, our church community board online. I don't know how many of these posts I made during that time period, but that was the first. The next day, March 11th, the World Health Organization, the WHO, declared a global pandemic, and by Friday, March 13th, churches were asked to shut down. Friday afternoon, I threw out my sermon. We were going through the pastoral epistles. I threw out my, first, my sermon on 1 Timothy and went to Matthew's gospel, and that Sunday I preached on Matthew 6, certain truths for uncertain times, and then four of us elders got up here and did kind of a panel to explain to the church what we would be doing moving forward. Sunday, March 15th, was the first time Christ Community Church didn't gather corporately since its inception in April of 1970. We, like every other church in the land, we went virtual. We watched, we waited, we prayed, we looked for toilet paper, right? That's what we all did. <laughs> By April 2020, April 22nd in particular, I sent my first letter to our political leaders. I started with our local leaders informing them that what we are, as a nation are doing is wrong and we are heading in the wrong direction and I asked them to change course. Some of you may say, well, what, what, what is that going to do? You're, you're a church, you're a pastor of a small church in South Orange County. That's not going to make a bit of difference in the government. 
I always tell people who think that little things don't make a big difference, those are the people who never slept in a room alone with a mosquito. Little things can make a big difference. June 6, nearly half a million Americans take to the streets and riot in over 500 cities. During this whole time, I, I could not keep track of all the emails, virtual meetings, town halls, surveys, and, and Zoom Bible studies, and everything we were all doing to keep our community moving forward. It was quite heroic. Just talking to Mitch briefly between services and the amount of work that he and Adam and the volunteer staff just to get us to meet Sunday after Sunday with all the changing rules was just a Herculean task. June 14th, we resumed physical services, if you recall, but they were laden with all kinds of bizarre mandates and dictates from the government. It was a very bizarre experience. June or July 19th, we began outdoor services, and they were cool, right? I mean, we really liked our outdoor services. We had a great amphitheater, and I'm thinking as a, to commemorate like the people of Israel used to do, we should do outdoor services every like July or in the springtime because it was a lot of fun. Can we get a motion on that? No. Nope. <laughs> yes. August through November, more conversations, more meetings, more dialogue, more back and forth. Did a couple of weeks. Um, one on gospel and fear was the sermon. The other was gospel and race. Trying to address the current situations in our culture. In November... I came down with COVID myself. And so on November 16th, I took advantage of my quarantine time, did a lot of my researching, and I wrote this time now not my local representatives, but my state and now the federal government, informing them that I would not comply, nor will I lead this church to do so. Now, here's how I began my letter. Nobody ever heard this letter. Nobody saw this letter because at the time it wasn't, it wasn't something that we were going to post. It was something I was doing as a citizen out of conviction as a pastor as well. This is a portion of what I wrote to the, 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 our, state, our state and federal government. It is not the duty nor obligation of citizens to justify the exercise of their constitutional rights or of their inalienable freedoms. Rather, it is the burden of the governing authorities who seek to suspend such rights and freedoms to justify its actions. This administration has failed to provide such adequate justification, and thus I respectfully exercise my right to petition the government seeking to redress grievances. In short, I will not comply with the mandates handed down by this, by this administration, nor lead my congregation to do so. Furthermore, we will resume our lives as free citizens, bound and protected by the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which includes the rights to assemble and to worship. We will resume our lives without undue interference from the governing authorities whose responsibility include the establishing of justice, protecting the rights of its citizens, promoting the general welfare, and to preserve the blessings of liberty. These rights and liberties are not freedoms and blessings that are optional, be it in a time of pandemic or not, but necessary for our American way of life. So I'm going to tell you the five reasons I wrote to the government that I, I felt was representative of what our elder conversations were. I'm not going to go into the whole bit, but just to give you a sense of the reasoning behind this. Reason number one, or grievance number one, as I said in the letter. The entire premise for the lockdowns was shown to be wrong. Here I cited the seriously flawed uh, studies from the Imperial College in London and the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation Studies. These were the studies that our, our leaders were using to forecast what could happen. If you recall, the prognostication was 65 million deaths in the first 18 months. As now disgraced, which by the way never materialized, at not even close. As now disgraced Governor Andrew Cuomo, he wasn't disgraced then, said, speaking of these early models, they were wrong. They were all just horribly wrong. Grievance number two, Gavner Newsom knew the lockdowns would have little to no effect. Here I cited the World Health Organization's own 2019 report 
non-pharmaceutical public health measures for mitigating the risk and impact of epidemic and pandemic influenza. I also cited numerous randomized controlled studies and trials that demonstrated the same results of this 2019 report. Dr. David Nabarro, the WHO, uh, World Health Organization COVID Special Envoy, stated, and I quote, although this is not the quote I've underlined there, that, that's actually where I just underlined how even in their own report, they said face masks have at best a small effect on influenza transmission. But to be for clear, uh, um, uh, what's that, transparency, the next sentence, although higher compliance in a severe pandemic might improve effectiveness. The point is, many of their own studies was, were addressing or cautioning the very actions the government was taking. Dr. David Nabarro, we in the World Health Organization do not advocate lockdowns as the primary means to control this virus. Words of their own reports contradicted the actions of the government and Newsom knew this. That's why I say my grievance. Grievance number three. This was eight months into the pandemic. No substantial evidence that the lockdowns worked comparing Scandinavian countries to American countries and countries that locked down. There were, relatively speaking, no differences. Grievance number four. The aims and goals are unclear, undefined, and therefore a violation of the rights of citizens. If you remember, we went from flatten the curve to stop the spread, to get off the watch list, to a tiered color system, and finally to health equity, which I had no idea what that's supposed to mean. Grievance number five, the cost of the lockdowns were far more harmful than helpful. I don't have to tell you the economic devastation to people's personal livelihoods and businesses. The spiritual well-being of individuals at every level plummeted. And when I say spiritual well-being, I'm talking emotional, psychological, all those things. And they just absolutely plummeted as a society. The Los Angeles suicide hotline prevention went up 300% in that, in that time period of quarantine. ABC News reported that doctors at the John Muir Medical Center stated they'd seen more deaths of despair, which suicide, during the quarantine period than deaths from COVID. In December, we brought in a microbiologist, Dr. Douglas Axe, who had just recently published in October of 2020 the book, The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. He spoke to us for an hour, stayed for another hour, answering our questions about how we were to make sense of this and how we ought to move forward. On top of all of this, the elders were watching the prevalence rate for eight cities in South Orange County. Prevalence rate simply means the amount of spread that something's taking place. So we monitor the prevalence rate and the morbidity rate, or the, the, the mortality rate, how many people die from it. In seven of the eight cities that we monitored for a total of 16 months, only, um, oh, they never, in the seven of the eight cities, it never once reached 1% of the population in terms of prevalence rate. The eighth city, which is our own, Laguna Hills, we only peaked at 1.19%. But in none of the eight cities did the mortality rate come near 1% of the population. Now, to be clear, this was a crisis for many parts of the world. This story is very different from my friends in Santa Monica or who passed it in downtown L.A. But for all intents and purposes, here in South Orange County, it was relatively non-existent. Now, I just want to pause and be very aware that for some people, to me, for me to say it was relatively non-existent can be very hurtful because you've been impacted or you know somebody who's been impacted tragically by COVID. Personally, I lost two good friends during this time period. One was a, a former member of my church. He died from a death of despair. He's one of those that was, the church was his lifeline to just sanity and being part of life. And when that shut down, eventually, about six months into it, he took his own life. A second friend of mine, a very dear childhood friend, we got kind of came to the Lord together, discipled each other. He died from COVID. And he, he left behind a nine-year-old daughter and his wife. 
So I'm not sharing this as if it's not, didn't have an impact. It did. But relative to what was happening in our society here in South Orange County, it was relatively non-existent compared to the rest of the world. We knew in the fall of 2020 that we, the leadership, the elders of this church, would lead this congregation as we deemed necessary, not as the government desire dictated or demanded of us. Now, if you were paying attention to the scripture I just read, that sounds really different from the narrative I just gave you. That's a really odd way to start a sermon on a passage of scripture that says, submit to the governing authorities. Let me explain why. You see, I think when it comes to uh, government, and government is an expression, a manifestation of authority, I I think people generally speaking, during this crisis, as a reflection of kind of where we're at on this issue, we're not as nuanced as Christians ought to be. So on the one hand, now there's uh, two ditches to avoid. There's always two ditches, right? On the one hand, there's the ditch of blind obedience. And I remember having conversations with people who said, you are a hypocrite. Because you talk about Romans 13 in the Bible and you're not following what the Bible is saying by defying some of these mandates. You're a hypocrite. And then the argument would go something like this. If, if you knew how bad governments were back then compared to they are how bad they are now, and yet Paul could then say, obey Nero and the Caesar, you can certainly listen to Biden or Trump or Obama or whatever it was. And I would respond to that individual and say, look, here's something you're not realizing. The reason we have such benevolent government now, and I know some of you are shocked because you don't think we have a benevolent government, but we we do. The reason we have such wonderful governance now is because you're standing on 2,000 years of Western civilization that has been influenced by a Judeo-Christian view of reform, uh, accountability, and change. And so for you to say that, it's because you now have thousands of years of men and women heroically changing the world for good. Secondly, the Roman government at that time period was a light of justice and truth, and people were flocking to be Roman citizens. Relative to the world then, they were a phenomenal government. Let me give you a case in point, I would say. If you were a Roman citizen, they could not beat you or whip you without just cause. If they had just cause, then they could whip you and beat you. If you were found guilty of a criminal or capital offense, they couldn't torture you. They could only do some humane execution. They could just cut your head off. That was it. Now, we kind of laugh because we still think how inhumane that you, we would never whip a criminal or flog a criminal or cut someone's head off. But again, relative to the society, that was humane and worlds ahead in kind of justice and civic treatments. These people, this person didn't understand how we got to where we got to is because men and women saw injustice and changed the system. So so that's an example of kind of blind obedience. And they're saying, well, you're just a a hypocrite and I'm out, right? Now, the other ditch you can crash in is what I call blind disobedience. And I'll be honest, I'll be honest, we can, as a movement and maybe even as a church, fall a little bit too far on the side of blind disobedience. I'm not listening to man. Man is not the boss of me. God, we're the people of God, not the people of man. We're going to do what we want. And you are a coward for not standing up to the government for doing some of these stupid laws that they're making us do. Right? That, so I was either a hypocrite or a coward. Couldn't win on the situation. The reality is, it, 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 it is, we're talking about authority in our relationship to authority. And authority is not 
authority is actually a good thing. And authority, our view of authority, and again, government is a manifestation of authority, has to be informed by Scripture. Our understanding of the nature of authority will determine our understanding of the nature of good governance. Friends, if you are a Christian, the Bible should shape a distinct understanding in your mind about authority. It is neither absolute nor is it arbitrary. The very existence of modern democracies in general and this great nation in particular is evidence of that fact. Neither the iron rule of the king or the iron rule of the individual was what our founding fathers envisioned for this country. We want to avoid, on the one hand, authoritarianism, and on the other, anarchy. And what what separates one from the other is a right understanding of authority, because authority is God's good gift to humanity. I want to say that again, because we we live, we're Americans, but also the time we live in, we don't buy that. But authority is God's gift to us. I want you to say in Romans, but I want to take you to 2 Samuel chapter 23. You can go there if you want. 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4. These are King David's last words. I mean, he's on his exit stage left at this point. Listen to what he says at the end of his life. The God of Israel, 2 Samuel 23, 3. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Why do you hear that? Where the end of his life, here's the king after, with a heart after God's own heart. And he says, and God is speaking through him. He says, when one rules justly in the fear of God, what's his rule like? It's like the beautiful sunlight the first thing in the morning. It's like the dew that's watering the grass that gives it strength and causes it to grow. That's what authority is. And we flourish under it when we submit to it correctly. Although, oftentimes, authority in a fallen world is abused or it's simply abdicated. But that doesn't mean authority itself is to be rejected. Instead, we actually need to have a right understanding of authority that a government is a manifestation of, that your family is a manifestation of, that the Lord's church is a manifestation of, that the state is a manifestation of. We need to have the right understanding of it so that we can submit to it, support it, hold it accountable, and stand up to it if necessary. You see, friends... Evil dictators, corrupt regimes, those are easy to spot and critique and reject, aren't they? The more difficult analysis comes when authorities are not overtly evil or or directly evil or corrupt. That's where the real challenge comes. That's where the body of Christ helps the world. As C.S. Lewis says in his book, God in the Dock, it's a great quote, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victim may be the most oppressive. It may be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity, greed, may at some point be satiated. 
But those who torment us for our good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their conscience. Okay, I'll be clear. I'm not saying our government is a tyranny, all right? I'm simply making the point that how we interact with our authorities requires more nuance than the, 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 the binary good-bad, right? It has, there needs to be some more nuance in the conversation. Government, like any authority, can be both at different times, can be both at the same time. And so we need to understand how do we navigate and live as citizens in that environment. Now, when most people read Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, they tend to walk away with the driving point, which, which is not a bad practice in reading your Bible. And the driving point being that governing authorities must be obeyed, and it looks something like this in their mind. So here's a conceptual diagram. Authority is from God, therefore... Authority is honorable and must be obeyed. But did you notice as I read it, maybe you read it yourself before you came to service this morning, that there are three strongly implied qualifiers that Paul has here in our text before we get to the conclusion, authority is honorable and therefore must be obeyed. And so now our, our conceptual diagram looks a little like this. Authority is from God. Therefore, authority is derivative Authority is accountable, and authority is good. Therefore, authority is honorable and must be obeyed. Those are very important qualifiers. Let's look at each one one at a time. I don't have a separate slide, but let's, they're, on the, they're on the screen behind me. Number one, authority is derivative. Paul says that very clearly in verse one. Authority is from God, and because we know this, that tells us that all human authority is relative. It is always relative. In other words, any authority that you or I might have is derived from something else. That's what I mean by derivative. It, it, it comes from another, right? It's derived from something else. Only our creator, only the Lord himself possesses absolute, intrinsic, inherent, total authority. Only the Lord. We all have authority as our creator gives it to us. Human beings do not possess any authority by virtue of being human. None whatsoever. We have it only as it's been given and delegated to us. This is true whether you're the president of the United States or you are a preschool teacher. Any authority you have, you have because it was bestowed upon you. For example, I, as a senior pastor, have authority in this church. But I didn't get that authority because on some Sunday I walked in here eight years ago and say, I will have authority in this church. That, that's, that wasn't from my wit or charm or force of personality. It didn't work that way, right? And if you ever go to a church where that did work, find another church. No, not at all. There was a committee, numbers, numbers of committees representing the membership of this church. They interviewed me. They talked to my references. They examined my credentials. They scrutinized my preaching. They checked my character, my background, and on and on it went. And after six or seven months of this, finally the membership got together and said, we authorize you, notice the root word is the same, we authority you to be the pastor here with all the rights and privileges, responsibilities, and obligations thereof. And friends, one day, 
I will lay that authority down, whether through retirement or some other life circumstance, or the membership will remove that authority from me as they gave it to me. It's not my charm, my boyish good looks. It's none of those things gives me authority. It's a gift given to me. That's how authority works. Just as God has given the authority of the rod, you think about Proverbs 13, 24, he's given the authority of the rod to parents. Matthew 6, 19, he's given the authority of the keys to the kingdom to the church. To be quite clear, he doesn't give it to individual Christians, he gave it to the church. The text is very clear. Just as Paul says in, in Romans 13, 4, he's given the authority and the power of the sword to the state. And when family and state and church use that authority well, things thrive. And when any of these institutions do not, things start going sideways quick. So first qualifier, authority is derivative. It comes from somewhere else. And because of that, because of that, all authority is accountable. It is accountable to God, who is the ultimate source of all authority, and for the exercise of that authority, and accountable to those to whom it's authorized over. And this is implied in our text. You see it in verse 4 and verse 6. Paul says the state, the government, servants of God, ministers of God. And verse 7, there's this concept of owing something to them. I'll unpack that in a little bit. The, the point I'm trying to get at here is that authorities cannot do whatever it wants arbitrarily or abusively, right? No authority can do that. So Paul says to families, to fathers in Ephesians 6.4, do not exasperate your children. Peter says to pastors in 1 Peter 2.15, do not uh, shepherd out of compulsion or shameful gain. Paul says to the state, do good with your authority, Romans 13.4. So the authority is accountable. It's derivative. It comes from someplace else. And because of that, it is accountable to where it came from and accountable to where it's going. And then third and finally, as a result of these, notice how these all work together. You get rid of one of these and it falls apart. Because of this, authority is for good. Now, to be honest, when it comes to what is the good, we can have honest, robust conversations about what the good is, what defines that. But the point is, authority is never for selfish gain to the one, for the one who is authorized, right? It's not about personal benefit. But nor is authority empty benevolence and mere sentimentality. Okay, those are two dishes we can crash in, right? Those are two other dishes we can crash in. Authority is never for the gain of the person who wields it, but it's also not just empty titles. Authority has actual teeth to accomplish the moral ends of what is good, beautiful, and true. And that's true in the family, that's true in the church, that's true in the state. Without that kind of teeth, any authority is worthless. So when authority fulfills this intention, authority is honorable and must be obeyed. Right? Friends, let me pause here. Those three implied qualifiers are critical. Without which, whether we understand this text or authority in general or any part of the Bible we're going to, without which we become as citizens mere slaves of the state. Right? That, that's one ditch. If we don't have these qualifiers, we can become slaves of the state. I was just talking to a friend of ours who's uh, formerly from the Soviet Union, <laughs> and he's a pastor. So he's the pastor of our Slavic church. I said, hey, man, what, what do you think? What, what should I change? He says, for America, beautiful sermon wouldn't work in Russia, you know, because it's completely different. 
because authority has taken a bad turn there and people are slaves of the state. But if we go too far the other direction, we become slaves of one another as society develops into anarchy or mob rule. So these qualifiers are important. They hold in tension the place authority needs to have in our lives. So we need to think more carefully about the government because the government is a manifestation of authority. We need to think more carefully than just simply a binary, bad, good, submit, don't submit, right? So let's, we need to tease this out for our situation. If I were to ask, if you're a Christian here, going from easy to more complex, if the government asks us to sin, do we obey or disobey the government? I think everyone's going to say disobey, right? Acts 5.29, we have it there in print. But friends, there are two other categories of civil disobedience that we have to consider than the question, is it sinful or not? See, and that's really what part of the, 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 the Christian worldview is. We live in a complex world. We cannot just be happy with simplistic reductions. We see that all over our society. The church can't afford to do that. That's why I'm actually having this conversation. It might seem more like a jurisprudence lecture than a preaching from Romans 13. Because the church is the salt and light of the world. If we don't bring this careful thinking to the world, then who's going to? Not us. I mean, it's not going to happen. So we need to think of more than just submit, don't submit, good, bad, sinful, not sinful. There are other two categories that we derive from the infrastructure of Scripture, all the way from Genesis 1 to Genesis 9, that Scripture is talking about a theology of authority. Now, admittedly, though, not all Christians are going to agree as we dive deeper into the nuances, but that's okay. Some, part of the benefit is just the process of actually thinking, oh, I hadn't thought that there's other ways to think about this. And that can add to your conversations. When it came to the pandemic and how we as a church submitted or not to the governing authorities, it came down to a question of these two categories that I want to address right now, which, as I said, are a direct outworking of Scripture. And they are, these are terms you're probably somewhat familiar with, jurisdictional appropriateness and jurisdictional overlap. So jurisdiction just mean, simply means who gets to say so and why, right? Jurisdiction is a sphere of domain. If you've ever worked in law enforcement or a first responder or watched any TV show like that, one of the main questions they're going to ask is, well, who's got jurisdiction? Who calls the shots here? Who's the authority in this situation? Really important question. So let's talk about the first one, jurisdictional appropriateness. And, and I want to do this by making it really a real easy illustration. So if your son's uh, track coach calls you and says, hey, your son needs to run laps every day, what do you tell your son? Coach called, you better be running laps every day, right? If your son's uh, wrestling coach calls and says, hey, he needs to bulk up, you start feeding him more protein or carbs or whatever it is you need to do, Right? If your son's coach calls you and says, hey, your son needs to start wearing a pink jumpsuit with a picture of the Spice Girls on it, you tell him go pound sand, right? <laughs> Why? You, you intuitively know, but let's tease it out here. The reason when your, coach, your son's coach tells you to run laps or bulk up, you're totally on board with it, but when he says go wear a pink jumpsuit with the Spice Girls on it, you realize he has jurisdiction over physical fitness, not fashion, his do domain of authority resides in this area, but not here. Another example. If I or one of your elders calls you 
and says, hey, you need to repent of this sin, you obey and repent of sin. If we call you and say, hey, I really would like you to give thought to serving in kids' ministry for the good of the church, you ought to give that request careful thought as a pastor or elder is talking to you. If I call and say, you need to bring me dinner every Tuesday night, you tell me go pound sand, right? Wait a minute. This person, Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders. So when I call and ask you to bring me dinner on Tuesday nights, I'm going to go, hey, Hebrews 13, 17, why do you tell me pound sand? Because you know, just like with the coach, that there is a certain domain, a jurisdiction that the pastor or elder has, that the coach has, and there are certain areas they don't. We are authorized in some areas, but not in others. So it is in every sphere. So here's a key point. From a biblical perspective, we are obligated to obey as far as someone has been authorized to command. Now, that's just not a biblical perspective. That's just proper jurisprudence. You are obligated to obey to the degree someone is authorized to command your obedience. No more, but no less. Jesus himself, in John chapter 19, verse 11, alludes to this infrastructure of authority when he's talking to Pilate. And he says, you would have no authority over me. The implication is Pilate has exercising a certain authority over Jesus. Jesus says, you would have none of that authority had it not been given to you from above. In Luke chapter 3, verse 13, speaking to the tax collectors, Jesus says the same concept. He said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do so. Right? He knew that you have an authority to do this, but you can abuse that. You're not to do more than you've been authorized. Friends, all authorities, including governments, this is the point I'm getting at here, have a lane to drive in. Your coach, your elders, your government, we have lanes to drive in. Paul is kind of alluding to that in verse 7, right? We talked about that concept of owing where he says, pay taxes to who taxes are owed, respect to who respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. What they are owed, they deserve, and as citizens we give. However, as even Jesus alluded to, what they are not owed, we are not obligated to give. God did not send governments or any authorities to do whatever they want. God sent them. He instituted them for the good of the people they govern and the people they have authority over. Now, let's be clear. This doesn't mean, then, that we just give the bare minimum of what we got to do, right? Okay, the Bible says this, so I'm going to do it. But that's it, man. Don't ask for no more. Which sometimes, as Christians, we can tend to be that way, depending upon who's in political power, which is not a good witness and not the way Jesus operated. Jesus operated in a sense of graciousness and, and giving grace and strong leeway as much as is possible. Keep your finger in Romans. Go with me to Matthew 17 where Jesus makes this point. Matthew chapter 17. It's probably a text of scripture you're very familiar with, but because it's bound up in a miracle, we always think about the miracle and forget the profound insight that Jesus is making here. Matthew 17 Look at verse 24. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax, some of your translations, if you have an NIV, you might say like the two drachma tax. They're just talking about the coins from different perspectives, same thing. For the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, 
does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, well, from others, that's Peter, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. And so what everyone looks at that passage, oh, how cool is that? Peter picks up a fish and there's money in it. Wow, what a miracle. And that's what we think about. But did you notice the nuanced thinking that Jesus displayed there? They come up to him. Hey, where's the tax? Didn't you guys pay the tax? And Jesus says, Peter, let me ask you a question. Who do the kings of the earth, he's kind of relativizing it, right? The kings of the earth, who do they get taxes from? Their kids or other people? And Peter, he's not, he's not a fool. He goes, oh, they're not going to tax their own kids. Kids get off scot-free. They, they tax the others. Notice what Jesus says. He says, yeah, so the sons go free, don't they? Peter, you're, you're a son of the king. At the end of the day, you don't owe this thing. You go free. But, but, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea, cast the net, go get that fish, get the money, and pay the tax. You see, it's, yeah, the fish is pretty cool. Why Jesus did it that way, I don't know. It'll little distracted from the profound profundity of what he said. But notice what he's saying. You are free. But not to give offense. To be a witness. Submit to them. Be gracious to them. They're trying to do their job. Maybe a silly tax. But there's no harm in us paying that. You could fight them on this, Peter, but don't. Submission is a better thing, to be joyful in it, to be a witness in it. And by the way, as a church, we did the same thing. Some of you may recall towards the end of May 2020, there was just, I mean, the churches have had it by this point. The church had never been closed like this since the Spanish flu of 1916, 18 or something like that, six weeks then. And we've been closed for over two months, and people had had it. They were going to reopen. You can't tell us what to do. We're the people of God, you know, kind of mentality. And, and I remember pastors calling me and saying, are you going to do this? We said, no. Here's an excerpt. We sent this letter to you all. If you weren't here, this is the first time you've heard it. For those of you who were, maybe you remember this, maybe not. Let me read just a portion of it. I'm starting at about right here. This is all the, hey, love you, let's get into the letter. So let me start there. Christ Community Church will not be one of the churches opening our doors for public service on May 31st. We've spent many hours listening, reading, and talking with other churches, pastors, civic leaders, and lawyers, both locally and nationally. And we do not feel that any of the arguments to reopen on May 31st rise to the level of justifying civil disobedience and therefore are a violation of Paul's command in Romans 13, 1-7 and Peter's command in 1 Peter 2, 13-15. We make no value judgment on those who differ with us. However, we disagree with this course of action not on pragmatic grounds for which we find ourselves in great agreement with them, but on scriptural grounds. In other words, we agree... The policies coming from Sacramento are problematic, cause unnecessary hardship, and are ill-conceived and poorly executed in multiple ways. However, God commands our obedience not because we agree or like various policies, but because it is right to obey those institutions that God ordains. 
And if we disagree with our leadership, the form of our disagreement should not be first civil disobedience, let alone write out defiance. Unless and until all forms of redress of grievances against our government have been attempted. Thus, we are bound by conscience to obey what we believe Scripture to teach, and we will not be opening on May 31st. Now, if you remember the history, just two weeks after that, all the churches got the permission to reopen. The question is, did we feel that the government was driving out of its lane? Yes. Could we, for the sake of our witness, continue to submit? Yes. Now, for those of you who were here with us, you do know eventually we ended up defying the government. But we did so publicly. We did so putting our names to it. We raised our colors high, so to speak, being very direct and intentional with, with our actions and asking for reasons, asking for response and correction as necessary so that as good citizens we could comply. Having received none, we moved forward. So the first issue of not just sin, is it sinful or not, is jurisdictional appropriateness. Are they driving in their lane? Is their transgression so great that it justifies civil disobedience? The second issue was jurisdictional overlap. What do you do when there are competing authorities? After all, that does happen quite a lot. I wish life was really nice like a bento lunch where everything was compartmentalized, but life is more like a bowl of ramen stew where everything's mixed together, right? So what do you do when you both authorities have a legitimate interest in a particular situation like we had during the pandemic? At the start of the pandemic, we submitted positively and willingly and gratefully to the government. Yes, I was thankful for Gavin Newsom's leadership. The government's job, after all, is to protect life. We weren't going to second-guess them or challenge them. We want to give them our trust. We want to lead with our trust until that trust needs to be reconsidered. But as time went on and the government drove more and more in our lane, we had to make different calls. We recognize in the overlap, you can see the screen behind me, in the overlap that when life was in danger, we did shut down. We submitted to the government based on what exactly what Paul's saying here in Romans chapter 13. The government's obligation is to protect life, and it supersedes even our obligation to meet, at least temporarily. I mean, after all, you can't have church if you're all dead, right? So we've got to have a priority of obligations here. The government's job is to create the environment where the church can flourish, and this is what I wrote in my letter. The government's job is to present, prevent, per, uh, protect citizens from being assaulted on their way to church, to keep us safe. The government's job is to allow the church to flourish so that the church can do its job so that the humanity can hear the gospel and God's purposes for humanity are realized in their salvation. That's how this works. And it's a tragedy that when any one of those institutions goes sideways. But when the government itself becomes the hindrance to the work of the church in areas of jurisdictional overlap, then the church supersedes the government. So to give you some, some, uh, some, a spectrum of how you think about these things, let's, let's ratchet up the intensity and shorten the timeline. If we're talking about the bubonic plague and like one in three of our children are nursery or dropping dead, we shut down. We, in debt, we shut down for what, however long it takes for the bubonic plague to pass by. Okay? But now let's lower the intensity but lengthen the time horizon. If we're talking about the common cold and they shut us down indefinitely, that's a different conversation. 
And COVID was somewhere between these two scenarios, more towards the latter than the former, right? That, that's what it was looking at. The pandemic for South Orange County was much more like a common cold than it was the bubonic plague. And again, like I said early on, I'm not discounting people's struggle with it. My family had COVID six times, okay? For us, it was not a problem, but for others it was. So we as a church, recognizing all these factors, looking at the word of God, recognizing the jurisdictional appropriateness and the overlap and what the changing situation made our decisions accordingly. Friends, I, I want to conclude by simply saying authority is never something to dismiss lightly. As the people of God, we ought to be the champions of good authority. We never dismiss it lightly, but at the same time, you never follow it blindly. Right? That, that, that is a, that's that, that simple binary that doesn't help. We don't just dismiss it, but we don't just follow it blindly. Authority should recognize its limits as a derivative attribute. And, and by the way, this is good judicial philosophy, Christian or not. I think it's influenced by Christianity, but that's what it is. Authority has to recognize its limits. Authority should always be accountable to a higher court than its own, as well as those it's authorized over. That's how this works. And third and finally, authority should always be for the good of those it is meant to serve and not for those who are meant to yield it. When you find authorities like that, that recognize their limits, that are, that are accountable, that are seeking to do you good, Paul's absolutely right. You honor it and you obey it. Keep in mind what I talked about though, right? We're obliged to obey as far as they've been authorized to command, right? But when you don't find authorities like that, Careful, prayerful, winsome, wise action is necessary not to reject authority, but to recreate and establish a true, good, and right authority because all authority is from God. And by the way, I'll conclude with this thought. All authority, and all of us are in authority, aren't we? All of us are in authority. All of us are in submission. And regardless of whether you are the one exercising authority or you're the one exercising submission, in doing so, do you realize you learn something of the character of God himself? When you exercise and yield authority and when you submit to authority, you are recognizing and acting like God himself. As God the Father exercises this loving, judicious, wise authority... And God the Son shows this wonderful, glad-hearted, joyful submission to authority. We do the same thing. And for a world that has no concept of, of authority or, or even how to relate to it, we're the only hope. And so we've got to reject the blind obedience or the blind disobedient ditch and have a careful, thought-out understanding what God's Word teaches about authority. Because when authorities exercise well in the fear of God, it's like the sun on a bright morning, the dew on the grass that does us well. I pray that we as a people can continue to model that. Hopefully the craziness of what happened is gone, but it might not be. And we need to be thoughtful and wise for the next thing that might come down, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your rich word. And we would never, I certainly would have never been thinking about these things if it were not for the crisis we were all faced with. And Lord, we know that's often what you do with trials. You bring difficulties and hardships and things we would rather avoid to help us dig deeper into your character, to your word, to live more wisely, to be more winsome, to be more effective. 
Father, it's clear our world is just, just does not know how to deal with authority. It's either abused or abdicated. It's just misused. May we be a people who rightly handle authority with the amount of humility and worship as a reflection of your very character as a witness to the gospel. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.